First question tonight um, is Acts 15. Turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 records what is known as the Jerusalem Council. Let me give a little bit of background here. In the early days of the church, the church was exclusively Jewish. Day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the church is born. 3,000 Jewish believers. Of course, all the disciples were Jewish, so it was a Jewish church. And the church began to grow in Jerusalem. And it almost appears that the Jewish disciples really didn't grasp what Jesus had given them in the Great Commission that he wanted the gospel to go to the ends of the earth because they weren't going anywhere. They were staying right in Jerusalem and just ministering to Jewish people. But then a persecution broke out uh, around the martyrdom of Stephen. And this is Acts chapter 8. This scatters believers and they go as far as Samaria. And then they begin to share the gospel with non-Jewish people, Samaritans. And then, of course, when Paul comes on the scene, uh, Paul is converted in Acts 9. And then he is called by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are called to go to the ends of the earth in Acts 13. So they began to take the gospel to Gentiles, and this created a problem because prior to this time it was a Jewish church. And uh, the cultural clashes between Jew and Gentile were really creating some tension in the early church. And in fact, some Jewish believers uh, had come to the conclusion that for a Gentile to really be a Christian, to really be saved... This uh, a Gentile person, if he were a man, he needed to be circumcised, male or female. Uh, they needed to keep the law of Moses, that is the Mosaic law, live by the kosher laws of, of what you can eat, what you can't eat. In other words, they thought, hey, if you're really going to be right with God, you need to accept Christ and his sacrifice, and then you need to live by the law. And so this obviously created tension. Therefore, the leaders of the early church come together in Acts 15, the apostles and elders, chapter 15, verse 6, says, came together to consider this matter and discuss, hold it, what does Scripture say? What is, what is the relationship between Jew and Gentile? And uh, we, we need to iron out some of this tension. And so they get together, and basically, just to summarize, their decision was, no, Gentiles do not need to go under the law to be saved. They do not need to keep the Mosaic law. Gentile men do not need to be circumcised to be right with God. So, uh, no, that is not the gospel. The gospel is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That was their decision. However, that still didn't resolve the tension that existed between Jewish and Gentile believers who lived quite a different life. I mean, can you imagine this Gentile believer who loves the Lord and is excited that he's in the family of God, a fellow heir with a Jewish person, and he invites this Jewish family over uh, for dinner, and he serves, you know... um, a uh, ham dinner for, you know, can you imagine the outrage among the Jewish person or, uh, you know, something that was not kosher? And so there were these tensions. And so as a result, uh, the leaders write a letter and distribute it to all the churches and they say, here's the decision. No, Gentiles don't have to become Jewish. They don't have to become proselytes to become believers in Christ and so forth. However, we do need to encourage Gentile believers to be sensitive to Jewish believers because of the uh, cultural issues and the Jewish stipulations of kosher and all of that. So they write this letter. And so here's the question with that as background that, that was turned in this morning. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul argues that food offered to idols could be okay 
provided those eating it have a right understanding, but not if it leads anyone to the stumbling by doing something which, due to their wrong understanding, seems to be against their conscience. That's exactly right. How does this square with Acts 15.29, where the elders and leaders in Jerusalem send a letter with Paul to the church in Antioch saying, abstain from food sacrificed to idols? And you can see that in their letter in verse 29, where it says that you abstain from things offered to idols. If it's okay, it's not a sin, according to 1 Corinthians 8, then why would they say you don't do this if it's really not a sin? And the answer is this, because the context here in Acts 15 is Gentiles relating to Jews. 1 Corinthians 8 is a Gentile context. The church in Corinth was a Gentile church. Now, I'm not saying there were no Jews in the church. Maybe there were some Jew, a few uh, Jewish believers, but it was by and large a Gentile church. So therefore, 1 Corinthians 8 says, you know, it's okay to eat food offered to idols as long as you don't provide a stumbling block to your brother. But this is about Acts 15 about Gentiles relating to Jews and understand that Jewish believers, very few if any, could ever be okay with meat offered to idols. Because of their background, because of their upbringing, because of their, uh, their despising of idolatry, it just was unthinkable to them that it would ever be okay to eat anything offered to idols, even though you're right, the person who turned in the question, according to 1 Corinthians 8, an idol is nothing. It's a piece of wood. Who cares if they put the meat before the idol and say some hocus pocus and then go out and sell it on the market? Doesn't contaminate it? Buy it. No problem. But you have different contexts. And this just illustrates the point, beloved, that, that there are obviously in Scripture rights and wrongs, black and white. There are things that are clearly wrong no matter what, regardless of context. But there are some things that in a given context would be wrong, whereas in another context would not be wrong. Just today after church, having lunch with a couple from our church, and we were talking about this in and, and a lot of different mission settings around the world, and specifically the issue of alcohol. And, you know, in some settings, uh, there, there are believers who have a glass of wine with their steaks. No big deal. It's not an issue. But in some settings, that would be, that would be among some Christians, depending on their background, that would be something that would be a stumbling block. And so in and of itself, uh, some things are not wrong, but in a certain context, they are wrong. And that's what you have going on here and why the leaders wrote and said, listen, basically, you need to be sensitive to your Jewish brethren who were raised so anti-idolatrous that it's unthinkable that anyone right with God would eat something offered to idols. So just don't do it for the sake of unity within the body. That's a very wise decision and a valid principle for us as we relate to one another in the body. All right, next question. Now remember, these questions, this is a good one. This is a youngster handed me this one. We, the questions just come in from anybody and everybody, and so we give uh, people an opportunity, and this youngster wants to know, and I'm glad he asked the question, and it is this. Will there be sports in heaven? And the answer is this. Probably not because with glorified bodies, it wouldn't be any fun because we would do everything perfectly. I mean, think about it. For example... Every golf shot would be a hole-in-one. I mean, that, maybe the first couple times that would be fun, but after a while, that's, you know, it gets old. In basketball, you would make every shot. So, you know, part of what makes sports fun is the competition, how you can improve or how you can excel. And, well, you know, if you just everything's always perfect, there, there's no fun in sports. So, uh, so uh, not meaning to disappoint you, young man, the one who turned this in, but I will say this, and I say it often. Uh, whatever you do, and this is young or old, whatever you do, don't dare insult God by assuming that heaven will be boring. 
And I say that because, frankly, there are a lot of Christians who, if they were to be honest, have the idea heaven is going to be boring. And sometimes us preachers give that intention, uh, that impression, accidentally, because we say things like, you know, at church, you know, this is what heaven's going to be like. And these poor little kids say, wow, an unending church service? That doesn't sound like that's fun. So uh, don't, in all seriousness, don't insult God by assuming or thinking heaven will be born. The description we have in Revelation 21, 22, if nothing else, and I think there's a lot to that description, but if nothing else, John piles up descriptions by using the word like and as. Well, it was like this and it was as that to try somehow to convey the idea that heaven is going to be more beautiful, more brilliant, more ecstasy beyond our wildest imagination. And that's what it will be. All right, next question says this. You're in Acts. Turn over to Romans 13, uh, the very next book of the Bible, Romans 13. And uh, it's not on this question, but, or this passage, but this will answer it. It says this, I know a non-Christian couple who are having a wedding and say they are getting married in the eyes of the Lord, even though the marriage will not be recognized by the state. They were told by a pastor that this is biblical and their marriage will be honored by God. Is there any biblical support for a marriage in the eyes of the Lord only? Uh, And I would say this. This is a little bit complicated. I'd say that in certain scenarios, in certain cultures maybe where there there aren't, depending on laws, etc., could be the case, but not here. Not here. Because in Romans 13, now remember, Paul's writing this to Roman believers living in the heart of the Roman Empire. And it was a corrupt empire. It was an evil empire. And yet, shockingly, in one sense, but not surprisingly, Paul says in Romans 13, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority... Basically, what Paul is saying here, and what we'll see in our study of 1 Peter when we get over into chapter 4, both Paul and Peter, as well as Jesus, said, Obey the government. Obey your government. The only exception is if your government commands you to disobey the Lord, either by doing something or not doing something. So when it comes to this issue... You may have preferences on like, well, I don't want my, you know, my marriage to be recognized by the state. I only want to be. Well, that may be your preference, but you have no biblical reason to go against that. There's none. I mean, if you want to have two ceremonies, one with the church and one with the state, you can do it. In fact, I know a couple here in our, in right here in our evening service tonight. I happened to look out and just saw them a minute ago who did that very thing. They had a, a marriage a legal marriage recognized by the state, and then they had a wedding that really honored the Lord and that type of thing, and that's great to do. But this couple, properly and rightly, were, in submissive, to, were submissive to the laws of the land of their particular country, and that is what we're called to be. So uh, in answer to this question, assuming this is someone here in the U.S., uh, then to say, well, we're not going to be married in the eyes of the state, we're not going to do anything that's legal as far as the government, but we'll be married in the eyes of the Lord, doesn't wash. It doesn't, it doesn't fly because Romans 13 is clear. We obey the government unless there's a, a biblical uh, uh, disobedience issue for obeying them. All right, the next question is this. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> and the question is this. What is the purpose 
of fasting for the New Testament present-day church, or more simply, why should we fast? This is really a great question and one I know a lot of Christians wrestle with. Just a few general comments about fasting. Uh, First of all, there is no place in the New Testament where we as believers are commanded to fast. Not one passage where we are commanded to fast. In the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture, the Jews were commanded to fast only one day out of the year. And that was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The most holy day in the Jewish calendar, they were commanded to fast uh, fast and repent on that day, to, to wrestle with, deal with their sin, etc. Now, we know from Hebrew Scripture as well as uh, uh, Jewish writings that the Jewish people added a lot of other fasts in their calendar. So if you talk to a Jewish person today, they will tell you about the days when they're supposed to fast. But understand that those days where they are supposed to fast, that's part of Judaism, not part of Hebrew Scripture. Only one day, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So one day in Hebrew Scripture under the Old Covenant, Jews were commanded to fast. New Testament, we are never commanded to fast. However, what Jesus does do in the Sermon on the Mount is he gives instructions for times when we would fast or when we do fast. In fact, notice how he words it in chapter 6, verse 16. He says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. In other words, Jesus, the instruction that Jesus gives about fasting is not to fast or not to fast, but when or if you do fast, this is what you should and shouldn't do. You don't show off. You don't go around bragging. You know, I'm fasting. I haven't eaten anything now for two days. I am really spiritual, you know. That's not the way you want to come across. You wash your face. You comb your hair. You don't let others know. It's between you and the Lord. What is fasting, both in Hebrew Scripture and the New Testament? Fasting is the setting aside of food, either for the purpose of a burden that is so deep and profound or for prayer focus that is so strong that food is just not something that you want to mess with. And especially in that culture, when you couldn't just go through a drive-thru and get food, or you couldn't just do something quick, the preparation of food was a big ordeal. And so if someone was especially burdened, had uh, uh, some deep issue in their life or on their heart, and they just wanted to pray, it would take a long time to prepare your meals. And they would rather sometimes say, you know what, I'm not going to mess with any of that. I'm just going to set that time aside to pray because of this burden on my heart or this issue on my heart. So, uh, in answer to your question, why should we fast? Uh, We should fast if there is a a burden on our heart that is so deep, so perplexing, so whatever term you want to use, burdening, uh, that we want to set aside the time that we would eat to pray, um, or if there's some, uh, whatever, some prayer focus that you have. Uh, But again, just understand that you will see a lot of times in Christian bookstores, massive books on fasting, they give a whole lot of information about how you should fast and all of that and why, you know, how many days you ought to fast and all that. Just understand, I'm not saying it's unbiblical, it's just abiblical. It's just not in Scripture. A lot of the, the books have all of this stuff, but it's just, you know, it's just somebody's ideas of how often you ought to fast and what days of the week you ought to fast and all that. Again, that's fine if a person chooses to do that, but... A lot of Christians, well-meaning Christians, sometimes say a lot more about fasting than the Lord himself has to say about it. All right, next question is Acts chapter 8. So turn over past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 8.
And we have the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You are probably familiar with this story where he was told to join himself to the chariot. And this Ethiopian eunuch's reading the, the book of Isaiah. He doesn't understand it. And so Philip explains the gospel to him from the book of Isaiah. And uh, the question simply is this. In, in Acts 8, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian, was Philip the apostle, uh, one of the 12 apostles, or the deacon introduced in Acts 6.5? If you back up just a couple pages to Acts chapter 6, you'll remember these first men who most commentators recognize as, a, as deacons, or at least a prelude to deacons. They are listed there in verse 5. It says uh, uh, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip. Uh, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, etc. And almost all commentators would recognize that this is the uh, Philip from Acts 6-5, not one of the apostles. Really, the only of the apostles, the only ones of the apostles that are really, that, that their story is followed at all, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you have Peter and John in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Um, but Really, after a short period of time, the, the Holy Spirit basically shifts the spotlight to the Apostle Paul. So from Acts 9, when Paul is saved, you have another story, including Peter in Acts 10, where he takes the gospel of the Gentiles, and chapter 11, where he's called on the carpet by Jewish believers for doing that. He has to defend himself. Acts 12 is the call. Um, I mean, Acts 12, you have Peter in prison, etc. And Acts 13, the call of Paul. And that's almost exclusively the focus, the rest of the book of Acts, is Paul. There's one other little section in Acts that kind of goes back to Peter, but the rest of the apostles are, it's pretty silent concerning them, the other apostles. Paul becomes the focus, the, the apostle of the Gentiles who took the gospel to the end of the ages, or the ends of the world. All right, next question. Uh, two questions here. Uh, let's turn back to John 14 for one of them. Um, it's not on that, but it will use this passage to answer the question. The first question is this. It's a broad one, and we, we, we could turn to a lot of passages, but I'll just mention one or two. Uh, the question is this. Should we address different members of the Trinity when we pray? Do we address the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit? The answer to that is this. The most common pattern in the New Testament and the most instruction in the New Testament about prayer is based on the assumption that our prayers will be to the Father. In fact, it's one of the things that Jesus did was open the way for us to go to the Father and address the Father. So the, not only the assumption, but even just the examples that we see uh, when Paul says, for example, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father. And then he records what prayer he's praying for this church or that church. So that is the most common pattern. Though there are a couple of passages in the New Testament, one where there is a clear, uh, uh, a clear example of an address to the Son, and that would be the stoning of Stephen when he prayed and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knew he was about to die. So that prayer was directly to the Lord Jesus. And one that seems to be, it's a little, the wording is a little awkward, so we're not certain, but it seems to be an address to the Spirit. So we may have, we have one example clearly where the Son is addressed in prayer, one where it's possible the Spirit is addressed, but all other examples are the Father. So uh, I would say that is the New Testament pattern for our praying. Now, having said that, let me just make a comment. Through the years in shepherding people and working with Christians, I have occasionally found Christians who for whatever reason, don't 
feel comfortable addressing the Father in prayer. And they pray exclusively to the Lord Jesus. And in sort of interacting with them and getting to know them, it's, there's been one common denominator among them, and that is that they had a terrible father, a terrible relationship with their father. And therefore, the idea of the fatherhood of God is sort of there, there's a barrier there. And my counsel has always been, uh, that's certainly understandable, but don't allow your earthly, sinful father to rob you of what the, the New Testament is full of examples of the privilege that is ours to go to the Father, uh, the opportunity to go to the Father. So if that happens to be you, that is something I would really encourage you to work through uh, and don't just sort of ignore it by addressing your prayers to the Lord Jesus exclusively. All right, next question says this. Uh, in a world that seems to have such a confused view of love, misguided view of love, How can we as Christians understand what it means to love God? What does it mean to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind? Great question, very practical one. A number of answers could be given, of course, because a number of ways you can describe what what does love for God look like? Uh, But if someone forced me and they said, well, you know, there's, you got to boil it down to one thing. What is one marker, one identifier, one indicator of love for God? Or what does it look like? Or what does it mean? Then I would simply go to John 14, Verse 15, where Jesus said this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's, that's as basic and as fundamental as it gets. When it comes to what does it mean to love God, I would say, uh, are we willing to do what he wants us to do rather than we want to do? In fact, I think the greatest expression of love for God, even though it doesn't use the term love in the verse or the description, I personally believe the greatest description of love for God in Scripture is found when Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That, to me, is is the greatest expression of love. Father, I want to, I don't want to go to the cross and become sin and be alienated from you. But if this is the only way redemption can be accomplished, not my will, but your will be done. That, in my opinion, is, is what it means to love God. When push comes to shove, do we do my will or do we do his will? I think that, that answers whether we really love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Our next question is from Romans chapter 8. So let's turn over to Romans, after John is asked, then Romans chapter 8. In verses 17 and 18, we read this. And if children and heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And the question is this. What kind of sufferings are Romans 8, 17, and 8, 18 talking about that we must suffer? And I think the answer to that is twofold, and it's actually sort of split up between the two verses. Uh, Paul's wording in verse 17 seems to indicate that he has in mind, at least primarily there, suffering with him. That would be persecution. 
That would be mistreatment. That would be uh, whatever you would suffer because of your devotion to Christ. It could be something as mild as people making fun of you, laughing at you, you know, disregarding you, not including you at school or at work or whatever, from that all the way to actual very uh, serious, severe persecution where, where you're imprisoned or where you are martyred, etc. So suffering with him in verse 17 seems to be specifically a reference to persecution whatever form it could take. But verse 18, Paul does seem to broaden it and talks about the sufferings of this present time. And that would then include what, whatever is involved in living in a fallen world. So it could be sickness, it could be trials, it could be whatever sufferings come our way because we live in a fallen world. Because in the very next verse, he talks about the fact that there are consequences even on creation because of the fall. The, the, he says the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In other words, when sin came, there were these effects even on creation. And there are effects on our lives. Uh, there are the, the, the ones mentioned about in the curse, the increased pain in child birth for women, the, the sweating by your brow, the, the labor for food, and all of those things, just living life in a fallen world. And Paul says uh, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed. So a- everything would fall under that umbrella. All right, next question says this, Pastor Brian, if someone asked for a good Bible study tool or some good Bible study tools, what would be some that you recommend? I'm thinking tools like concordances, dictionaries, language study books, etc. Are there any specific ones that you would recommend? Let me just give you three or four. And of course, this list could be 10, 15, 20, many, but uh, just a, a few. First of all, I think every Christian ought to have access to some kind of exhaustive concordance. Now, I'm not just talking about like a concordance in the back of your Bible. I'm talking about an exhaustive concordance. And an exhaustive concordance is a tool. Now, I, I say tool because it can be a book or it can be a computer program. And probably more Christians are moving to computer programs. But basically, an exhaustive concordance records every time every word occurs in the Bible in your particular version. In other words, if you use New American Standard Bible or NIV or ESV or New King James, uh, then if you're getting a book... Make sure that you get one that is an exhaustive concordance for that version that you use. Because if you use a NASB and you get one for the NIV, they don't work because you're looking for a specific word. So in other words, uh, this I'm using tonight the New King James. I have a New King James exhaustive concordance. So if I say, you know, I know there's some verse in the Bible, there's some verse in the Bible that says something about a widow's might. All I have to do is look up the word might. Not M-I-G-H-T, but M-I-T-E. And it will tell me every time that word occurs in the Old and New Testament. And I can find the verse. Now, again, computer programs, way easier to type in the word as long as you're on the same version that you know. But I think that's an invaluable tool because every one of us in this room has had the experience and will have it in the future where you know there's a verse in the Bible and you have no idea where it is and how you're going to find it. And so uh, just to be able to find passages and to be able to, to type, if it's a computer program, type in the word fellowship and see every time the word fellowship occurs in the Bible, you can use that for, for Bible study uh, reference. So some kind of exhaustive concordance in book form or in computer form. I think that's a, that's a, a, a foundational resource. A second one closely related is, and there are several uh, versions of this out, but there's a book called the TSK. That's what it's called for short. It's Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, TSK. It is, the great, in my opinion, the greatest cross-reference 
tool in print. Uh, for example, if you go to Genesis 1-1 in the TSK, it'll say, in the beginning. And then after the word beginning, it have all sorts of cross-references about the beginning, all through the Bible. So you can track the concept of the beginning all through the Bible. Uh, in the beginning, God created. Then it'll have all sorts of cross-references throughout the Bible on God creating. Uh, the heavens and the earth. Maybe it has the note there. And every, all these references about the heavens and the earth. And so a TSK is a great cross-reference tool I think Christians ought to have. Uh, another tool I think is, for me has been invaluable is a, is a book called Talk Through the Bible. And through is spelled T-H-R-U by Wilkinson and Boy. And the reason I like it is it is a book with basically 66 chapters, and it is an overview of every book in the Bible. deals with things like authorship, date, why was it written, to whom was it written, what were the circumstances about it, and it gives you the big picture of a book before you try to go into the details of it. And so having that, now a lot of study Bibles, they have that kind of thing, you know, beginning, so, so maybe it's not as uh, invaluable as it used to be, but uh, if you don't have a study Bible that has a lot of that stuff, then something like talk through the Bible is extremely helpful. Um, then as far as uh, one other tool that I recommend uh, most Christians start with when they're getting serious about Bible study is, you know, eventually you maybe want to get commentaries on, on every book of the Bible, but that takes a lot of time and money and all that. And so you, you need something that at least help you when you're doing a Bible study with some tough, some tough uh, passages and verses. And I recommend as a starter, I recommend as a starting point for Christians to get it's called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It's a two-volume set, one for the Old Testament, one for the New Testament. You may not agree with everything that is proposed, but one reason I like it is that rarely does it not address something. The most frustrating commentaries are those where you run into a passage and you say, you know, like uh, Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison, 1 Peter 3. What in the world is that about? And you open your commentary and the author says nothing about it. You've had that happen, I'm sure. Just skips over it. Well, at least the Bible knowledge commentary will address it. You may not agree, and it will give the reasons why, but, but it, it, at least it gives you a coverage of the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And then after you've given a big overview, you can go get individual commentaries on different books. But those are some of the tools I recommend as starters for Christians who are serious about Bible study. All right, the next question, Psalm 74, back into Hebrew Scripture. Psalm 74. In Psalm 74, verse 14, it says, You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. And the question is this, is this a reference to manna? In other words, you remember the people were fed with manna in the wilderness. So the, the person who's reading is thinking, is there a connection here about feeding the people in the wilderness, etc.? I don't believe that is the case. It's probably not. And let me explain to you why. Uh, this, this psalm, like the psalms, uh, is composed of poetic language. Many of the song, psalms uh, use poetic language to extol God's mighty deeds. And that's what this psalm is doing. Uh, you know, if you go back to verse 13, it says, You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. Verse 15, You broke open the fountain in the flood. You dried up mighty rivers. The day is yours, the night, etc. So the psalmist is extolling the mighty works of God. 
And what is the, one of the best ways he could extol the mighty works of God and talk about God's power and God's might? Well, what creature, and if you know the book of Job, you know the answer, what creature was known as the most powerful, the most fierce, the most dominating creature on planet Earth? Leviathan. Just read about him in Job. Uh, probably a dinosaur of some kind. So I think the psalmist is simply trying to think of a way to describe, I think this would be, uh, those who have had my hermeneutics class know I talk about plain literal and figurative literal. Both are literal. Just one uses a figure of speech to give a literal idea. Like when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He obviously wasn't saying, I am a loaf. He was saying, I am the source of life, the sustenance of life. But that's that's a figurative literal statement with a literal meaning. I am the door. Not a four-by-eight piece of wood. What is the, a door? So we're, something you go in. So I am the entrance into eternal life. That's a figure of speech with a literal meaning. So there are two kinds of literal in Scripture, plain literal, figurative literal. I take it that verse 14 is a figurative literal statement with a literal meaning that God is more powerful than anything in creation, that he could even, you know, when animals are killed, they do become, they become food for the wilderness, whatever, whoever's in the wilderness. And so I think it's just a way of saying God's power is so great, so awesome. He broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him his food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Poetic language uh, for God's mighty deeds. All right, next question says this. Uh, you made the statement this morning in, the mess- in your sermon that there are many verses in the Bible about prospering. And this comes out of, you remember when we looked at Psalm 1 this morning? The person who delights in the law of the Lord, he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. That's Psalm 1-3. Uh, so the question is, can you say more about that? Are we talking about literal, like financial prospering? Are we talking about spiritual prospering? Uh, what's the difference between prospering as the Bible discusses and prospering, say, according to what Joel Osteen preaches. Kind of prospering where if, you, you know, if you're right with God, then you'll, your bank account will be full and you'll never get sick and the health and wealth, prosperity gospel, etc. This is a great question. So let me see if I can explain it just briefly. Um, you, need, you need to be very careful when you are reading Hebrew Scripture... That's the Old Testament. That's how most Christians refer to it, Hebrew Scripture. You need to be very careful to understand that you are reading someone else's mail. Right? I mean, Hebrew Scripture was written to the Jewish people. It was written to the Jewish people under the Old Covenant. The New Testament could not be any clearer that we are no longer under the Old Covenant. We're under the New Covenant. I mean, Paul says that in Romans. He says it in Galatians. James says it. It's throughout the New Testament. Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, the Old Covenant was glorious for its time. It was wonderful. But when you move it out of its time and out of its purpose and try to put it in in 21st century, the 21st century world, it's out of its purpose. You've missed its purpose. It's out of its time frame. We're not under the Old Covenant. So when you read... Hebrew Scripture, you need to realize you are reading someone else's mail. That does not mean, please hear me, that does not mean that the Old Testament is irrelevant for us. Paul says in Romans 15 that what, was, what happened before and recorded is for our learning. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. So properly interpreted, properly taken, properly understood, there is much we can glean from Hebrew Scripture. 
But if you go to Hebrew Scripture and you take it out of its context, you can really tie yourself up in knots. Because, related to this question, it is a fact that many of the promises given in Hebrew Scripture were promises about prospering. In other words, God said, if you obey me, I will always give you rain for your crops. That's just one example, okay? I could show you where God says that. If you obey me, I will always give you rain for your crops. Now let me ask you a question. This has been a year of drought, not only in our state, but in the Midwest, throughout much of the U.S. Do you know of any godly Christian farmers who obey the Lord, love the Lord? Do you know of any who didn't get rain this summer? Well, if you know many at all, then you know the answer to that. Absolutely. So what's the problem? God says, if you obey me, I'll always give you rain for your crops. Why didn't that happen this year? Because that is not a promise to believers under the new covenant. That is a promise to Jewish people living in the land. Here's the other interesting thing about many of the promises God gave to the Jewish people. They not only are promises about prospering, God saying, I'll keep the locusts away from your crops. I'll, uh, so many about, I'm going to prosper you financially. I'm going to give you a lot of food, a lot of crops, etc. And you're going to be head. You remember that in Deuteronomy? You'll be head and the nations will be the tail. But if you don't obey me, they're going to be the head. You're going to be the tail, etc. In other words, you're going to be on top if you'll obey me because I'm going to prosper you, make you powerful, etc. But here's the other interesting thing. Many of those promises that God gave not only are to the Jewish people, they're to the Jewish people, watch this, in the land. In the land of Israel. Some of those promises do not even pertain to Jewish people when they're in the uh, diaspora, when they're out of the land. Because when they're out of the land, they're out of the land because of judgment. That was God's judgment on them, to get them out of the land or to push them or take them out of the land. So that's why I made the comment just briefly this morning. Be careful how you take Psalm 1, verse 3, that if you delight in the law of the Lord, whatever you do will prosper. Be careful. Don't set yourself up by saying, oh, God's going to prosper my business. And then when he doesn't, you blame God. The problem isn't God. The problem is you didn't do what 2 Timothy 2.15 says, and that is rightly divide the word of truth. And it's so sad to see well-meaning Christians set themselves up Or set others up for major disappointment because they claim promises that they really shouldn't be claiming. Because they're misinterpreting them. They're taking them out of their context. So, and this of course is often the basis of the prosperity gospel. Is that they rip these verses out of their context and say, here's the promise. If you just obey God, you're going to be rich. You'll never get sick. Never have to go to the doctor, etc. And it's, it's it's a terrible misuse of scripture. It's a, it's a terrible Um, it's a terrible thing to do to people to set them up that way and make God look bad and then make them struggle with God because of the way you handle Scripture. So do what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly divide the word of truth. All right, last question tonight is on Matthew chapter 25. Let's turn over there. Matthew chapter 25. Here is Jesus giving the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, the ten virgins. And you're familiar with it. Some had oil, some did not. Some were ready, some were not. And then verse 11, afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know 
neither the day nor hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And the question is simply this. In Jesus' answer, I do not know you, to the virgins in Matthew 25, 12, is this the same, I never knew you, depart from me, that we read about in Matthew seven twenty three? It is the same answer, but it probably is a different setting. Now, now what I'm saying is this is specifically in relation to his second coming because he talks about his second coming in Matthew 24, and then he gives illustrations of the days of Noah, parable of the fig tree, illustration of two servants, parable of the talents, parable of ten virgins, all about the importance of being ready for his second coming. But in Matthew 7, Jesus is talking about the judgment day at the end of the age, not necessarily in connection with the second coming. So same answer, but maybe a different setting, both just as serious. I mean, just because it's a different setting. I can't imagine, in my opinion, I've said this in the past, Matthew 7, 23, and we can include this verse, these are the, these are the scariest statements in all the Bible, especially Matthew 7, because Jesus said that a lot of people are going to say, Lord, Lord, look at all we've done, and then he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. As I've said in the past, it's one thing to go to hell and know you are going to hell. It's another thing to stand before the Lord and be sent to hell when you thought you were going to heaven. Nothing can compare with the shock. And that's what Jesus describes in Matthew 7. Different setting in Matthew 25, but same answer, same words. I don't know you. No relationship, which is why Scripture often describes being a Christian as knowing the Lord. John 17, 3, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together this evening, for the encouraging report on the shoebox ministry, for the time in your word to look at these uh, various passages and uh, these issues that uh, people are wrestling with. Thank you for the eagerness to learn, the diligence to delve in and wrestle through these issues. Uh, may you continue to uh, strengthen us to do the task that we talked about just a moment ago from 2 Timothy 2.15, to make sure that we, we are diligent to present ourselves as workers who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.